I want to read you a description of a man. He is a tall man, well-shaped, and of an amiable and reverend aspect. His hair is of a color that can hardly be matched, falling into graceful curls, parted on the crown of his head, running as a stream to the front after the fashion of the Nazarites. His forehead, high, large, and imposing, his cheeks without spot or wrinkle, beautiful with a lovely red, his nose and mouth formed with exquisite symmetry, his beard of a color suitable to his hair, reaching below his chin and parted in the middle like a fork, his eyes bright blue and serene. That's a description of Jesus and his incarnation, according to one person. Now, the person who wrote that was on a mission to clean Jesus up a bit. The person who wrote it actually wrote it in the 1500s, but dated it pseudonymous, I mean, authored it pseudonymously, saying that it was written by Publius Lentulus, the Roman governor who succeeded Pontius Pilate. So he wanted to write this description in the 1500s and set it in the first century so that people would think this was the view of Jesus at the time. I wonder why you would do that. Well, he does that because Jesus looks like no king, does he? He looks like no king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of a kingdom that's eternal. He just doesn't match up with our expectations. Now, we see this in the world around us, don't we? We see this in the world around us. The people who are deemed successful right off the bat don't have to demonstrate they're successful. They just need to look and sound like they might be successful. They don't need to demonstrate they have character. They just need to look right. They need to be the handsome ones, the tall ones. The men have to be the square-jawed, tall, and, and strong ones. And by definition, they will be the ones who lead and have good character. And sometimes that is true. But have you ever noticed when somebody is in the boat to be determined beautiful, but they're not physically beautiful? We use the terms of, even though they're not physically beautiful, they're truly beautiful, right? We started thinking they weren't beautiful because they looked one way on the outside. We had to get to know them a little bit. And in spite of that, we still think they're beautiful. Our, our, our understanding of what is beautiful and successful is skewed. It always has been. And I'm afraid in the sinfulness of man, it always will be. We see that in today in our movie stars and our athletes. And I even say we see it in the church, do we not? You are not successful as a pastor unless you pastor a large church, have a large platform, have written a book that has sold a bunch. And if you have done all of that, you are a godly man who is successful because God's favor is on you. Now, could that be true? Yes. Is it always true? No. Our viewpoint of success is skewed. Our viewpoint of character and mission is skewed. So I want to ask you this morning, what is your view of Jesus? When you think about Jesus, how does Jesus enter your mind? Is it the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, flannel-board Jesus from your VBS days and your Sunday school days? The one who looks like a German rather than a Middle Easterner? Is it 
Is it a picture of loveliness and beauty and perfection that is different than the Bible gives or the same as the Bible gives? Do you have physical um, characteristics come into your mind or do you have character characteristics come into your mind? How do you think about Jesus? That matters because the scriptures say very little about what Jesus in his incarnation looked like. The text that we're in says the most. Isaiah 53 has the most to say about what Jesus, the incarnate son of God on the face of the earth, walking on the face of the earth, actually looked like. And yet we have these visions and these pictures in our mind that can skew how we think about his work that can skew how we read the text of the New Testament and the Old Testament's scriptures. So how we think of Jesus is important, and we have this viewpoint of his, uh, from God, from heaven, of what he looked like in Isaiah 53. And it is all based around the sufferings that he endures as a human being, as the fully God, fully man, incarnate son of God. His sufferings were why he came. Now, it's not all, right? He lived the perfect life. He died that perfect death. He rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But his mission was to come and to save sinners, which required identifying with them and suffering in their place. And that's what is before us the next few weeks. So part of what we need to do as we enter into this text is set aside those presuppositions that we might have. Set aside this, this view of Jesus that doesn't comport with the text. But also for us to see in the text where we were and where we are. Where we were before we came to Christ. Why did we reject him? Why do others reject him? What, what does Christ's rejection have to do with our life as believers today? How does it frame our lives? These are the questions that are before us today. Now, it's very difficult to take Isaiah 53. And remember, Isaiah 53 has been truncated, right? It actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13, where we were last week. But it's very difficult to take Isaiah 53 and chop it up into five sermons. But we have to because the text of Isaiah 53 is so rich and deep and so dependent upon the rest of the text of Scripture for us to fully understand it. So we're going to do our best to keep verses 1 through 3 as our focus, but not rip it apart from verses 13 through 15 of 52 or verses 4 to, um, 4 to 12 of 53. So what I want to do to start this morning, remember with the, with the questions in our head, how are we viewing Jesus? What does what the Bible has to say about Jesus and his life have to do with our life today in our um, mission to serve him? Let's stand together and I'm just going to read the first six verses of this text, starting in Isaiah 52, 13 in our Bibles and reading through verse three, which is our text today, verses one through three. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see. 
and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Well, last week, at the end of chapter 52, we saw that the servant shall be high, lifted up and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many. And you can just see that right in these last ver- in the last three verses of chapter 52. It starts with the exaltation. And remember, we, we did a little bit of an overview of the whole fourth servant song last week. We won't do that every week. But remember that it ends in an exultant tone as well. So it's kind of a chiastic kind of structure where the, the last two sections are talking in the same voice and the same topics, and the second and the next to the last section are along the same topic, and the center section, where we'll be next week, that is the center of the, the teaching of this fourth servant song. So we see that he is, he is, uh, that he will act wisely. And remember, we looked at that word that he will, he will live in such a way and make wise decisions so that he will prosper and be successful. And we looked at how that word was used in other passages to help us understand passages like Joshua 1, verse 8 and 9. But also, he has the, the Lord turns and talks to the servant with that one verse. Look at your text in verse 14. As many were astonished at you. We shifted back and forth in who's talking and who's being spoken to many times in Isaiah. And this is one of them where he, he turns his gaze to the servant and says, many were astonished at you. Affirming his suffering But then he gives us a little bit of a picture, the appearance so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond the children of mankind. Some of that we'll deal with today in more specifics, some next week dealing specifically with his suffering. And so we saw the connection, as many, verse 14, were astonished, and then so his appearance, and so shall he sprinkle many nations. Through his suffering, he will do the sprinkling. And we looked at that as being that language of salvation, of cleansing, and it would be many nations. So our eyes in this fourth servant song are not just on the Jews, although the Jews are very prominent. They're not just on the Jews. Our eyes are on all the nations because he sprinkles many nations with his sufferings. And the result of that sprinkling is kings shall shut their mouths because of them for that which they have not been told they see and that which they have not heard they understand. That's the result of the sprinkling. Now, as we move into chapter 53, verse 1, there's very little disconnection between them. We're going from these sprinkled nations with kings who now have their eyes open to the questions that follow that, to the questions that follow. And we see that we we have moved our pronouns, and it's going to be very, very prominent from here and the next three verses as well, next week, verses 4 through 6. We need to really watch these pronouns, who's speaking and who's being spoken to. And who does the the claiming in these verses? 
So as last week we saw the servant being lifted high, high and lifted up and exalted as a result of his suffering to cleanse many, this week we'll see the servant was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and despised and rejected by men. The servant was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and despised and rejected by men. Look at verse 1 of chapter 53. Two questions are asked. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? So the us in verse 53.1 and all the way through the next six verses is disputed. Who is speaking when we have these terms? Just look at verses four through six with me. Let's have a precursor of where we're heading and see that this is important for us to understand. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds or stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the substitutionary language that permeates that? It starts in verse 1 for us to understand the questions that are answered. Asked and unanswered, but we know the answers too. The first question, who has believed what he has heard from us? So there is a message And who is the we that's speaking? The we, I'm I'm not going to go through all the possibilities, but I think the we is clearly in this context as it has been given to us in chapter 52, all of chapter 52, and as follows, this is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the nation. The we in this passage is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the nation. And yet, it's the speaking of the nation that speaks for all of us. It's the speaking of the nation who recognizes that this one whom God sends, the arm of the Lord, the arm of Yahweh, the one who he sends is not who we expected. And that is the tenor of, of the Christ acceptance or rejection in the New Testament, isn't it? The Jews weren't expecting the Jesus that came. No one's expecting the Jesus who would die. It's an eternal kingdom. It's an eternal Messiah. And so this question permeates everything. So it is Isaiah speaking on behalf of the nation, but he's voicing what all people through all time have to deal with when they look on the Messiah who dies, the servant who dies an unimaginable death and the reasons for that. So who has believed what he has heard from us? Here's the relation between these two questions. I'm convinced of this. The relation between these two questions can be understood if I read it this way. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Who are those who will believe? The one who God reveals. The one who God opens their hearts. We've seen that over and over in Isaiah alone, haven't we? We don't even need to go to the New Testament to see this. We've seen this through Isaiah completely. There were those who would not believe, and there were those who would believe. God is always preserving a remnant, revealing himself to them, making promises to them. God has a people for himself that he is redeeming, and that happens through revelation, and God is the one in charge of the revelation. Todd read one of those passages already that we're just getting ready to look at. But I think that is the relationship. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Well, nobody believes it at the beginning without what? 
without God doing something in them. They may believe a historical fact, but they don't believe unto salvation. They don't believe all of, of what was happening there, even if they believe the historical fact. At that time in Jesus' day, yeah, I, I saw a man they called Jesus. He died on a cross. They said he rose again, but I didn't see that. And it's an unbelief, even if they know the historical facts. So there was a revelation that must take place. And that's the way I think these two questions, who has believed what he has heard from us, to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Now remember, the arm of Yahweh in this section refers to just completely to God working out his power. God's arm is his power, right? All through that poetic literature. But specifically, it is the servant himself. It is the servant upon whom the coastlands wait in chapter 49. It is the servant who God speaks about of ensuring that his power will be displayed through him. So I want to look at just a couple of passages in the New Testament to show you that this is what the New Testament authors thought that this meant as well. Um, Let's start in Romans chapter. Keep your finger or put your ribbon in Isaiah 53. We'll come back there. Romans chapter 10. This passage is quoted twice directly in the New Testament. Romans chapter 10 is one of those. And we'll see the quotation of verse 16, but we want to hold it all in context. We're not going to do the 2020 rule where we read 20 verses, but we are going to read uh, in front and back and, and make sure that we see its context. Look at Romans, its context. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now remember, we just saw that verse in Isaiah 52 a few weeks ago, right? Isaiah 52, 7, this is that New Testament application of that. But, verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. So they have... The, 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 the gospel is being preached where there, is the, there are the feet bringing good news, but not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, quoting from later in Isaiah, where we haven't been yet, chapter 65, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Do you see the key? It's revelation. God is the one who's revealed himself to the people he intends to save. Now Paul is making the whole case in Romans 9, 10, and 11 that he has not forgotten the Jews, that the Jews are being brought to salvation as well. It is just the Gentiles that are the forefront. And he gives all that explanation of what's going on there, but God's revelation is at the center of it. Turn to John chapter 12 now, where Todd already read, but I want you to see it again so you can understand why it was read then and what its context is. Todd brought us the context. I want you to see all of this. Romans chapter, or John chapter 12. Verse 
We're going to begin in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that he had been, and heard it said that he had thundered. I'm sorry, I have sweat in my eye, and my glasses are slipping. Let me refocus this. May I, in verse 29? The crowd that stood there had heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see the open invitation. You're wa- the, the light is among you, believe in the light. He's speaking of himself. When Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's our verse. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. You see that? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. So you see the connection. The invitation goes to all, but some will never believe, some will not believe because God has not revealed himself to them. And both of those things fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, what God said through him. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Two more passages. Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who is the Son. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. It is Jesus who reveals the Father to the nations by his word and by his actions. Now, 
I want you to turn to one other place, John chapter 6. And you say, do we need to go to four different passages? And I say, yes, sometimes we do. There are many times we could go to dozens and dozens of passages, and we want to make sure that we're not ripping a scripture out of context. I don't want you to think that I'm making a big deal out of two verses in Isaiah chapter 53, or one verse, two statements in Isaiah 53, but this is the tenor of the teaching of the scriptures, that God is the one who does the revealing. He's the one who does the revealing, the drawing, the saving. He is a sovereign God when it comes to salvation. And so sometimes piling a few texts on to let us see clearly from the mouth of Jesus and his disciples what the purpose was is helpful for us to not have that gut reaction against such what might be a hard teaching, but is actually a glorious and beautiful teaching. Because if God did not reveal himself to you, you would have never seen him right? We would have never seen Jesus clearly. We would have never understood what God did in Christ if he had not chosen for, for the, his own glory and grace to us to reveal himself to us. John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus? the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? (laughs) How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. You see the constant juxtaposition of the free offer of the gospel and the promise that God draws unto himself those who he reveals himself to and that the Son will lose none. And we as believers should say, hallelujah. There should be no fighting in our soul against the fact that God is in charge of the salvation that he provides and that he does it as he sees fit, and we do nothing but stand in awe and wonder of his sovereign and mighty power. God reveals himself and salvation through Jesus. Back to Isaiah chapter 53. And you say, is all of that in verse 1? Did you just take that and give us this long sermon about something you just wanted to preach? Yes. No. <laughs> I can't believe you said that, Michael. I thought you were my fanboy up here. You correct me when I'm wrong. Let's just go back and look at it in context. We've pointed this out, but now that we see this throughout Scripture, verse 15 of chapter 52, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Well, how does that happen? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? God is the one who revealed it to him. This is the result of the sprinkling, is it not? This is the result of the cleansing of our sin, the result of our changed hearts. And the people of that day realize that they did not see it clearly. But now they're looking back at everything. And I want you to see all of these tenses in the, Greek, in the, in the Hebrew. They're past tense. The, 
Isaiah is speaking about something that is happening several hundred years in the future, but he's speaking about it using language that he's so sure and God is conveying to us the surety of what's going to happen that it can be spoken of in the past tense as if it already has. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? We've looked at what that is setting us up for. Look at the next verse as it starts. For. For. So now we're starting to talk about what? Right in our context we know. How was the arm of the Lord revealed? What did people see? For he, that is the servant, grew up before him, that is Yahweh, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Now immediately, if we're thinking biblical theology in Isaiah, we're remembering some things we've already learned about root and shoot, right? Back in chapter 11, that this servant, this Messiah, it wasn't servant language back then, it was Messiah, messianic language, that servant was going to be both, the, the Messiah was going to be both the root and the shoot of David. Jesse. David, right? But it's Jesse, the root and the shoot. And so we see that confirmed in the New Testament. We sang about it already that, that, that when we talk about the Messiah, the Messiah is what? He is David's Lord and David's son, right? Root and shoot is what's being talked about. So we're already remembering, okay, maybe we're talking about that messianic figure and it's just more affirmation that this servant is God. This servant is the Messiah. But In this particular section, we're not only supposed to see that, we're supposed to see weakness. Weakness in the minds of men. Read it now. For he grew up before him like a young plant. A young plant can be overtaken very easy. You can pluck it out very easy. The young weed is the one you can pull out. The old established weed is the one you might need a hoe with, right? So this is, he is being described as a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. The root system in dry ground doesn't go very deep, does it? It doesn't, it doesn't make it. There's nothing to hold it in there. The roots look for water but find none and they're easy to pull out. So this is to bring forth the idea that the people saw him as weak. But look what else it gives us very clearly. For he, the servant, grew up before him, Yahweh. That tells us that the servant is not Yahweh. Right? Now we know that theologically that we serve one God in three persons. Right? But this is Yahweh sending God, his son, and his son grew up before him, before his faith. He was not separated from him. And we've seen that so much in Isaiah. We've, up, we've, we've proved it and, and, and supported it from the New Testament that God, it's his power that's in the servant. It is his promise. In all three of the servant songs, we have seen different ways where God says that he will undergird his servant. He will empower. It's his arm that will keep his servant uh, on his mission. So this is the servant that grows up before Yahweh, and this is the servant that people see. Remember, this is is their description. We see that in the very next phrase. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. So when we begin verse 2, this is how the people would have seen him, as weakness. Not as a warrior. Not as a conqueror. Not as weakness, not as anything of strength, but only weakness. That's the metaphors that are used. Look at the second half of verse 2. He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So here we have that, that um, parallelism again that is so prominent in Hebrew poetry. And this, this, in this parallelism, the second phrase advances the first. And I want you to notice these words, form and beauty, form and beauty, they're the same words that we already have seen in verse 14. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, 14 of the last chapter, and his form beyond that of the children of man, mankind. It just didn't look right. He didn't look like the strong one. And so the same word is the same two words are used there. Now, these words are used in other places that are very informative for us in, in the scriptures. They're also used in Genesis 39, 6, where Joseph is described as handsome in form and appearance. The same two words that we have. So here is a human who demonstrated form and appearance, beauty as it's as it's translated. 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul was more handsome than all his people. 1 Samuel 16 verse 12, David was ruddy with beautiful eyes and he was handsome. We also see the same two words in another way to show that this is more than just external, but this is the perception of what internally would have come from them. When we read about um, Leah and Rachel, Leah's eyes were weak but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So Leah's eyes were weak, conveying a weak constitution, not just physically, but inner weak constitution as well. But Rachel is brought as being the opposite using the exact same two words. So in this verse, when we see he had no form and no beauty, no form or majesty, which we'll get to, that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. The looking is not just gazing. The looking is gazing and fixing so that we desire what we see. And they're confessing that all the believers when Jesus comes, if there, or all the people when Jesus comes that saw him come to the face of the earth and do his work in ministry, many of them looked right over him. We read about some of them there. Isn't this the one... We know Joseph and Mary, right? We know that this can't be, how can he be claiming that? It's just another one of those pictures where people looked over him. He had no form or majesty, no glorious outward shining. Now, isn't that the, the, just the sum of ironic misconceptions that the Lord of glory, who is majesty himself, is looked at because of him coming, and we'll see why he's coming in a minute. I'm trying, I'm trying to hold that back so we can just see the man, see the man before his mission is more reminded for us, more unveiled, that they would look and see no majesty in him, and he is the definition of majesty and glory. He possesses it all in himself. But because he took on the form of a servant, a bondservant, a slave, in the likeness of men, that's what he needed to do to come to the face of the earth because his mission was to die in their place, as we've already looked at it a little bit ahead in verses 4 through 6. And to do that, he needed to look like us, and yet his form was, and, and his appearance was just of a normal man, not even a normal man, maybe somebody that was a little bit on the ugly side, that people saw no value in him. And we'll learn in the next passage that they thought he was punished by God for his own sin. For his own sin. So there is a confusion they do not see clearly. 
had no form or majesty that we should look at him, but increasing that, no beauty that we should desire him. Now, there have been people that have risen throughout history to their own um, level of of successfulness as leaders and, and, and standard bearers for their cause that weren't ugly. Abraham Lincoln was one of those people. Abraham Lincoln was charged one time in a debate um, by Douglas, and Douglas charged him of being two-faced, and he famously says, you think if I had another face, I'd be wearing this one? <laughs> he also was one who said, and I didn't find where he actually said these words, but it's a quote that If you ever research quotes to find out where they actually come from, and then you find out they really don't have anything to do with what you thought they did, there's something different. Well, this is one of those quotes. It has different, it's said in different ways at different times, but it reflects what we're learning here. Lincoln is said to have said, your face before you're 40 is, you can't do anything about that, it was given to you. Your face after you're 40 is your fault. You hear what he's saying by that? You live in such a way they look past your ugliness and see the character that you have. And by the time you're 40, you should already be living that way. Well, Jesus comes as one who looks like he does because of his character, because of his mercy, because of his obedience to the Father. That's why he looks like he does. He comes to identify with his creation and the suffering which he began as a child not just on the cross. His whole life is marked by suffering and rejection and, and people not responding to him as God. It ultimately culminates on the cross, yes, but we, we're foolish to think that his life was normal until he arrived in Jerusalem. This was the king of glory walking in sinfulness, heading to the cross to bear sin. So it was all full of suffering, as verse 3 tells us. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So notice how this whole verse is bracketed by the idea of despised. So that's what we're thinking here. That's in the forefront of our mind, that people looked at him and despised him. Now this From what I understand, reading people who know Hebrew, when we use the word despised, a lot of times it has a very emotional, you know, condescending, snarling kind of of look to it. It's very emotion-based. But in Hebrew, the word despised has to do with counting, looking and finding no value in something and just looking over it, despising it and not giving it any um, look, any care, uh, any merit, any long look. It's just like looking over them. So this is what brackets the verse. He was despised, he was despised. And the, the first despised, he, the scripture says, and rejected by men. So what he came to do, who he was, were rejected by men. And this is men and women. And then we get a little description. Why is this? Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of, literally these words mean, the, the sorrows mean pain and grief means sickness. And maybe some of your translations capture those meanings, but don't be fooled here. When you read all the way through Isaiah 53, these sorrows and these griefs that he bear, that he bore, those are your sins. Those are my sins. 
They're brought as pains and afflictions and sicknesses. And sin does bring that on, does it not? That we have sickness in our lives because there's sin in the world. Sometimes we have sickness in our lives because we have sinned. But, but the sickness and the, and the pain that's in the world is a result of sin. So when, when this says he's bearing that and, and these are the things that he has borne, we're talking about our sin and his mission on the cross. He was despised and rejected by men and women, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This idea of esteemed is going to come back again. Here we esteem him not, but later we're going to esteem him guilty. So Mark how that is used in many, in several ways in this text. So this is a man who comes, he comes upon the scene, and people don't recognize him for what they should because they look at him with human eyes, human judgment, human ways of judging success and, and potential for success, and ones that they think would be beautiful with the right form. They look and they see none of that, so they despise him. They turn their eyes away from him. They reject him and his claims because he is there to do one thing, to bear the sorrows and griefs, the sins, the iniquities of his people, and then hide their faces. They just, have you ever been around someone who's very sick that you don't know? If you don't have the gift of compassion where you're drawn to them, you might just not know what to do and you want to stand back a little bit. You might want to just stand away a little bit because they're, they're suffering. You don't really know them. You don't know why they're suffering. You don't know what to do with that. You don't, know, you don't know how to bear that whatsoever. That's the kind of thing that happened. That's what's being described. They look and they see him and they almost feel sorry for him because of the, what he's doing. Now, we haven't even moved into the cross yet. You understand that, right? Verse 4 and following is where we moved into the work on the cross and what is hinted for us in verse 14 of what happens to him when he is actually being punished and on, uh, before the cross and on the cross. We haven't even moved there. This is just his position as the God-man, as people saw him as a human being. And even there, they're rejecting him completely. They completely misunderstand he, who he was. I was reminded of Twain's story um, the, the Prince and the Pauper, you know that story where the young, the young man who is a, who's poor and, and uh, he doesn't like his life and the, the prince, the son of the king, he's, poor, he's rich but doesn't like his life so they hatch the scheme to trade places and in the meantime the king dies and, and, and the prince is actually parading as the pauper and he tries to convince everybody over and over and over who he really was that he really was the prince and now he really was the king and he needed to get back into the castle and all the people saw what? He's a pauper. He's just lying. And that's what the people saw. The people did not see a Messiah come to rescue the people because they wanted physical rescuing and not spiritual rescuing. One commentator says this about the despised in verse 3. The general concept is clear. Esau, for example, despised his birthright. Saul was despised as king. Michael despised David as also did Goliath. Jeremiah and Daniel speak of kings that were despised. The word is a frequent occurrence and simply signifies that men have rejected the servant and thus despised him. The word is introduced again, this, ver- this being a characteristic of Isaiah's style, and it gets the sad note of the entire verse. That's where he's saying it begins and it ends in the same place. Another commentator speaks of the esteemed not in this verse. The Christian thinks inevitably of Jesus Christ. 
a baby born in the back stable of a village inn. This would shake the Roman Empire? A man quietly coming to the great preacher of his day and asking to be baptized? This is the advent of the man who would be heralded as the savior of the world? No, this is not what we think the arm of the Lord should look like. We were, expected a costumed, we were expecting a costumed drum major to lead our triumphal parade. Our eyes are caught and satisfied by superficial splendor. This man, says Isaiah, will have none of that. As a result, our eyes flicker across him in a crowd and we do not even see him. His splendor is not on the surface and those who have no inclination to look beyond the surface will never even see him much less pay him any attention. So what makes one want to do that? They have been cleansed. They have been drawn. Their heart has been changed. Those are the people who look deeper. Those are the people who look on the suffering Christ and see him and mourn over his suffering but rejoice because it's God's plan. They are the people Now, this affects so much stuff for us, doesn't it? What are you thinking about when we think about Jesus? We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute, and when we do that, we're always having our mind on the crucifixion, but are we just thinking about the crucifixion as this this event that happened back there, or are we thinking about the suffering Jesus who was rejected his entire life, not just on the cross, but was rejected his, his entire life, and this is what it costs so that you and I can partake of the supper and feed on the truth of the gospel and go out and be strengthened because of the strength of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are you thinking? What do you think in your evangelism? I mean, this is key for evangelism, is it not? How many times, maybe you yourself have been this way, this is the way we were taught many years ago, we were taught how to evangelize and it was all outcome-based. If it didn't work, you gotta do something different. And if they walked away from you and didn't profess Christ, their blood is on your hands. I was taught that. I probably taught it many years ago. Maybe you grew up in the same kind of evangelistic section that that's what would happen. But I'm here to tell you that we preach Christ crucified because we're commanded to and nothing else saves men and women. Nothing else. Nothing else but the preaching that they are sinners and Christ came to suffer and die for their sins and has now been raised again. Nothing else God uses but that kind of preaching to draw men and women unto himself. That's how he reveals himself. And then the eternal revelation is the spirit moving on them to receive it when before they had not seen it at all. They had despised the servant. So when we preach, doesn't this invigorate our preaching and evangelism? It should invigorate. It should give us no fear because it's not up to us. The only failure that we have in evangelism is what? Not evangelizing. That's the only failure. And God even overcomes that because God will reveal himself to whom he will. So it changes everything about the way we think of evangelism. And it's not just, well, I'm going to go evangelize today. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about your life with your kids, with your friends, in the organizations that you belong. The the person and work of Christ should be so much on our lips that we are constantly looked at as people who are reflecting Jesus because our words are constantly talking about Jesus even in the midst of our hobbies and those things that drive us in earthly ways, good gifts from God, it should all drive us to Jesus. 
This is the way, same way we look at the world when they reject Jesus. We, re, they, we see that they reject Jesus. We're not surprised, are we? We're not surprised why, but we don't change our attitude toward them because such were some of you. You were caught up in those same sins, the same sins that were a product of your disbelief. So we just keep loving and we just keep preaching. It also gives us a a, a very clear look at this stardom um, baloney that's in the Christian world today. We are so full of people who worship preachers from a distance that it's, 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 I, I don't even have words for it anymore. Here's what I tell people. They may be a great preacher, but they ain't your pastor. Do you hear that? Do you hear the truth ringing in that? I I don't care that you listen to all these great preachers. There's thousands of preachers who preach better than I do. But don't set them up above those of us who are in the church as elders who are going to give an account for your soul. We will stand accountable for your soul. And so many times, well, so-and-so said, and... It doesn't matter to me what they said. It matters to me what the Bible says and our life together pursuing Christ. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But we live in a culture that elevates men and women for the wrong reason, and this text attacks that. Here's another way it attacks us. Are you repelled by the unlovelies of the world? Are you repelled by them? Not just their physical look, but those those ones who just... You'll never say it out loud, but in your mind you're saying, there ain't no way God can save that person. Have you thought that? Shame on us for thinking that. See, we can be repelled by the unlovelies. And the reverse is true as well. We can be driven to be seen as the lovely one. As the one who has no struggles in our life. I'm never going to let you into my life to see this. We can have the opposite direction as well, where we are trying to set the false facade in front of everyone. Jesus did not do that. He could have called down myriad upon myriad of angels and been relieved of the will of his father, and he chose not to do that. He identified with us, and he didn't have to do that. He was transparent, to use a nice modern word that rings true in people's minds. He was transparent before the people. This is how we grow in our sanctification, isn't it? We don't grow in our sanctification if we deny the need of sanctification. It's not going to happen. Well, Jesus was despised and rejected by men. That's going to be our life as well. We are going to be despised. We're going to be rejected. Calvin says this verse... um, is representative of the church, that it speaks of the church as much as it spoke of the servant. If our master suffered, we will suffer. If we're bearing our cross, we will suffer. So this is the picture of the church, and yet we feel like sometimes that we should never suffer. We should never have pain. We should never have sorrow. We should never battle sin. There is suffering in this life, but this life is momentary light affliction, right? that's leading toward an eternal weight of glory. 
And so we are constantly feeding upon the Christ who died for us. We're constantly feeding upon the Word of God that reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ, what He accomplished it, accomplished, and how it affects our life. We are, as, as, Luke, as um, Luke brought to us this morning, that we are, according to Romans 6, how helpful that is in sanctification, that we are dead to sin, and we must consider ourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Because Christ came and was rejected, but still died according to the will of the Father because it was the will of Yahweh to crush him and we're feeding upon those truths because they have a result in our life. I read this week that in 2016, I didn't know this, but there was a a large um, model built of the city of London. I don't know how big. I didn't go look it up, but it was large. And they built it to burn it to remember the 350th anniversary of the Great Fire of London. And they did it not to remember the fire, but to remember the resurgence that came in London and in society as they rebuilt from that fire. So they built the city, burned it, so they could remember that the city was what it was then because of the the change that was made in the city as they rebuilt. Now in a sense, that's what we do when we come before the Lord's Supper, isn't it? We're not re-crucifying Christ. We're remembering what he has done, but it's not a mere remembrance. We are remembering what he did. We're remembering that um, after living that life, which is what we've learned about in the first three verses, next week we'll come to verses four through six, but we're remembering what he accomplished in his life, but we're also remembering what benefits it brings to us, what power it brings to us, how it gives us the ability to obey the commands of God that we find in the scripture. So we are remembering what he accomplished so it feeds and strengthens us for what he's asked us to accomplish in obedience to him. So that's why we come together for the Lord's Supper. This is a time for us to to remember that we are still fighting sin even though we're free from the power and penalty of sin. It's still present among us. This is the time we come and if we have broken relationships, we go mend them with people. We, we, we leave our gift at the table and we go mend the relationship with people. This is the time we're remembering that Christ died for sinners and that now we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus and we must, we must consider ourselves that way and we're remembering the, the sacrifice of Christ so that it feeds and strengthens us. That's why the powerful chapter that we came in on the end of in one of the passages we read earlier where he's ta- Christ is talking about his bo- eating his body and drinking his blood. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about spiritual warfare. You, you must be connected with me in this way. And it's a constant feeding. So we come before the table and we're remembering. Isaiah 53, I wish we could celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. When we're, uh, uh, oh, maybe I hear that more. (laughs) Especially in Isaiah 53. I wish we could celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, especially in Isaiah 53. I just want to walk, in preparation, I'm not preaching these sermons, but in preparation, look, put your eyes back on Isaiah 53. I know many of you have already closed your Bibles. I want you to open them back up. Beginning in verse 4. Coming right off of this phrase, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed 
Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. There's the words of the hymn that we just sang this morning that we'll sing all month. But you see what it's saying. The people thought he was being punished by God. He must have sinned because he's being punished by God. But, there's one of those wonderful buts in our scripture, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Pierced. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. And then the condition that brought this about, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him, the servant, the Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened on his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Who considered that? They considered he was stricken for his own sin. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Now, can I just stop right there? The Lord's Supper is for those people whose iniquities have been borne. Those who have come to Christ and repented of their sin and trusted in him. That's who comes to the Lord's table. And all are welcome for that. If you're one visiting with us or not a member with us, we invite you to the table. If you are one who Christ suffered for your iniquities and they are now forgiven because you've repented of your sin and trusted in him. If you have not done that, my call to you this morning is not to come to the table, but come to the foot of the cross. My call to you this morning is to come to Christ, not to his remembrance of what he accomplished, but into the benefits of what he accomplished by repenting of your sin and turning to him. Finally, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. Here's that victorious language of the, of the returning victorious warriors, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgression. The sinless one became sin so that we who were sinners would know his righteousness. And that's what we're remembering. That has happened. Hallelujah. It's not something, we're, we're waiting for its con, that, that is conclusion, but it has already happened. We are those who have had our iniquities forgiven. We, we are able to fight sin and worship God freely in spirit and in truth. We are those who have the gospel of good news on our lips that are the feet bringing good news. And that's our role. We get to do that. How many times do we look at all this and we think we have to do that? 
We get to do that. We get to glorify God by doing what he's called us to do. And the power to do that, Christ dying on the cross for our sin. That's what we're remembering here. So take a few minutes and prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper. And if you're serving, you can come on up and take your seats.